Welcome to Beyond Medicine. My name is Rami Webby. I'm the host of the podcast. I'm a physician with a particular interest in healthcare innovation, building a better healthcare experience, and overall health and well-being. In this podcast, we bring you inspiring leaders from across the medical landscape to help us build a better medicine and lead a better life. We hope you enjoy. What's up, everybody? I'm with Dr. Lori Santos, PhD psychologist, host of the Happiness Lab and Yale professor. Dr. Lori, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on the show. So what's up? What's new? What, what do you got going on? I see the Happiness Lab podcast. I heard one of your podcasts with Jay Shetty, which I thought was really cool. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the background, the history and how you got started in all of this? Yeah, so th- this all started uh, when I took on a new role at Yale. So I'm a professor of psychology here at Yale. You know, I'm a researcher doing you know the typical researcher things. But I took on a new role a couple years ago where I became a head of college, which means I live on campus with students. And mm. it was in that new role that I really started to see this mental health crisis of college students up close and personal. You know, where so many students report being depressed and anxious and really, really stressed. And I was really affected by this. You know, it wasn't kind of how I remember going to college and what college was like back in my day. And so I wanted to do something about it. And I decided since I was a psychologist that I would teach Yale students a new class about the science of happiness. And, and the reason is just that the science, the scientific work suggests all kinds of simple things you can do to improve your well-being on a daily basis. It's just not necessarily things that we know about um, and so not things that we're generally doing. And so I decided to teach Yale students this whole class about the science of happiness. Uh, I assumed, you know, a couple dozen students would take it, but it became the largest class ever in <laughs> Yale's 318-year history. So one nice. out of every four students at Yale took the class. Yeah, I saw you had to, you had to use the auditorium to fill the class, correct? Yeah, it was it was a concert <clears throat> hall. So it was like, you know, the place where they normally have, you know, enormous like musicians, like super famous musicians come in and give concerts. That's where we were teaching the class. So yeah. that was a little surreal, but it, it taught me that, you know, there's there's a real hunger for this kind of work, for evidence-based approaches to how you can improve your well-being. And so the podcast really emerged out of that. It was realizing that this isn't just something that Yale students need. This is something that all of us need. You know, so many yeah. of us feel like we're kind of time famished and we don't have enough time to do stuff. We're feeling stressed. You know, many of us are feeling depressed and anxious. And, and a lot of us are trying to take actions to fix that. And it, it's yeah. not working. You know, we're trying to yeah. change our jobs or increase our salary or buy more stuff. And, and yeah. it, we kind of double down, but it doesn't give us the happiness boost we think. And yeah. so the Happiness Lab podcast emerged out of that, realizing, you know, people need these tips around the world. And so it, the mm. podcast is, you know, different episodes about different topics in the science of happiness. But in each episode, you'll learn a practical tip for how you can improve your well-being. Right. That's, that's great. And what, what, I'm curious, why do you think so many students are so unhappy? I mean, today compared to, let's say, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Yeah, what do well, you think right it is about the- college culture or, you know, like academic culture that's leading to this? Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's the million dollar question. I think we don't know. What we do know is that rates of mental health dysfunction are skyrocketing in young people right now. So there are twice the number of of college age students are depressed as they were just nine years ago. So it's doubled the number of individuals who are depressed in less than a decade. Um, We see rates of like two thirds of college students reporting that they're overwhelmingly anxious most of the time. And over one in 
college students right now, according to a national survey, say they regularly think about committing suicide, or at least that they've seriously considered uh, suicide in the last year. And so, so these stats are really awful, but, but you've asked the perfect question, which is like, what's going on? And the answer is we don't really know. I think part of it is an academic change. Um, a lot of students in these national surveys, if you ask why they're so depressed and anxious, they'll say it's about academic stress. And I think students have you know, taken on more academic stress than they ever have. I think there's this idea that you need the perfect grades to get the perfect internship, to get the perfect job. And I think students are starting that kind of stress really early on, you know, in some cases, even in middle school and even before. Right. So I think academically, you know, we're more stressed. But I think there's also other things that we're kind of moving away from the things that we know will improve our happiness. So uh, young people are less social today. Uh, you know, they don't physically hang out with other people as much as in any previous generation. You know, they're having less sex today than in any previous generation. Right. Um, you know, they're spending more time online rather than in real life with other people. And I think mm -hmm. those demographic changes really are impacting well-being and mental health in ways we don't expect. Yeah, it's kind of sad. Do you see it getting... Do you see things getting worse in the future? Because that's what I see. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's <laughs> not the to be a grim podcast, reaper, but it just—it doesn't uh, seem like it doesn't seem like we're headed in the right direction. And I agree with all the things you just said. You know, like social isolation, social media. You know, so I actually just did a recently did an experiment myself, starting on January first, where because so. So I've had, I've had this Instagram account, um, that I've used as kind of like a doctor influencer account. Right. And when you had, when I've, ever since I've created this account, I realized, you know, something was happening with, you know, like something was off about me. You know, I, I was starting to kind of get too sucked into my influencer page and, and the idea of this, you know, persona that you create online. And then I realized throughout my day, I was having so much social interactions with people that I don't know through my social media. And, and these are very superficial interactions that I wasn't craving the daily interactions with, you know, my friends or with people in person. And when I disconnected from the whole influencer page, uh, I, I, I really noticed that I was like re-engaging with my friends, talking to people in person more, um, you know, felt better, actually, a lot better, because, you know, like, we're social people, and we kind of need that depth and that kind of um, connection with other people to, at least I do, to really feel to feel good and healthy and alive. And um, I think that's a I think that's a major contributor, you know, maybe it may not be highlighted as one, but I definitely think that's playing a role. No, I think a lot of the research suggests that that's exactly right. Um, Every available positive psychology study that I know of suggests that happy people are social people. They spend more time with other people physically. They're just physically around other people more often. And they prioritize time with their friends and family members. And so we need to be social, you know, in the way that primates were social before, not online, not, you know, on your Instagram page, but in real life. And I think there's this opportunity cost when we're spending too much time online. You know, it, it's much easier to whip out your phone and check your Instagram feed than to talk to the person next to you in line at a coffee shop. And I think that these sort of simple moments of social interaction are going away in part because we're spending so much time on social media, but just, just on our phones generally. There's, there's some lovely work coming out of uh, Liz Dunn's lab at the University of British Columbia showing that the mere presence of having your phone makes you a little bit less social. She has one study where she plops people in a waiting room, you know, waiting to come in and do the study, and she's measuring how social they are. She measures how, how much they smile at other people. 
And she finds that when people have their phones around them, they smile about 30% less at the people around them. Now, it's not like when you have your phone out, you think, well, I'm going to be really antisocial and not smile at these people. You know, it kind of happens without our awareness. But it's really leading to this culture where over time, as we get more and more involved in the online world and, and more of our social relationships happen there, I think we're losing out on what can happen in real life. And it's the in real life stuff that really has an impact on our mental health. Hmm. Makes me curious to think, you know, what it's going to be like in like 20 years or, you know, later down the line, because as technology gets more advanced, are we just going to become more, more sucked into the, the digital social interactions? I don't know. That's kind of, kind of worries me a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, sure I mean, I, one thing I tell my students is I say, you know, as sucked into your phone now as you are, what's that going to look like in 10 years? You know, we have the iPhone 10 now, like what's the iPhone 20 or iPhone 50 going to look like, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be so much more able to suck us in and so much more compelling and so much more like a slot machine every time we pick it up. Yeah. And so the idea is we really need to come up with strategies now to, to yeah. have better norms about phone use when we're around other people um, yeah. or to realize the effect that it's having on our mental health. If we're going to, you know, there, there's so many great things about technology. It's not just to kind of, you know, like, you know, technology sucks and be a Luddite and so on. It, that's not yeah. what it's about. It's, it's so good for us in certain ways, but how can we have the benefits that our phones provide without yeah. a lot of the drawbacks in terms of our well-being? Yeah. Do you think there's an element of, I feel like in today's age, you need way more self-control than, than you've ever needed in the history of the world. Because there's so many avenues to get, you know, to get sucked into. I mean, there's, I mean, there's drugs, there's alcohol, there's social media, there's a lot of things to become addicted to, a fair in a, in a fairly easy, uh, what's the fairly with fairly easy access, I'd say, um, and it's it just seems like the self control and the the willpower needed to really do well in life these days is just, it's, it's, it's becoming harder and harder. I don't feel like there's as much temptation. If you look back like 40 years, I mean, maybe there was, you know, like there is drugs all over in the sixties and seventies, but um, it just, it makes me wonder, you know, like how much willpower can you really have uh, in your day to day to really limit all of these things, all these temptations? Yeah. Well, I think, I think there definitely is something to that. I mean, you know, there were always temptations for our attention before, right? You know, I mean, people listen to the radio or watch TV instead of, you know, talking with their loved ones. Right. But but phones are a special case in part because they, they, the phone creators and app companies get the most revenue by controlling our attention, right? So they have to make it as sort of slot machine as possible. They have to make you get, you know, a little reward hit every time you pick up your phone to look at Instagram. And that means that we're, we're really dealing with technologies that are built to grab our attention, that are built to compete with other stuff in the world. I mean, you know, for example, Netflix describes itself as not competing with other companies. It describes itself as competing with sleep, you know, so that's like Netflix's main competitor. And I feel like, you know, Instagram might see their main competitor, not as another social media site, but you know, the people you hang out with in real life. And so, Mm -hmm. so these are real kind of revenue trade-offs that these companies are dealing with. Um, and I think that's different than what we've seen in the human species uh, up mm-hmm. till now. And, you know, there's aspects of our life online that's a little easier, a little bit more frictionless, less startup cost than talking to people in real life. But, but these kinds of online interactions, the research is suggesting, might not have as many benefits. 
Um, that said, I think, you know, there, there are more temptations that we face these days, but I think part of the problem that we see in these mental health cases or, you know, cases where students are feeling stressed and overwhelmed is that they're often prioritizing the wrong things. You know, it's not just that they have technology around them. It's that they're prioritizing their academics, you know, at the expense of sleeping, at the expense of exercising, at the expense of their social connections. Um, the latter of which we all know are going to improve well-being. And so I think that's why understanding the science of well-being can be so powerful. We have these incorrect intuitions about the things that are going to make us happy. And so that means we go off and we prioritize all the wrong stuff when we could be doing better. We could put effort in, in a way that's really going to improve our well-being. We just don't know how. Mm. What do you think leads to this prioritization of academics in school and grades and following the rules? And what is it that makes people so, you know, like, I don't know how to say the right word, but what is it, what is it that leads to that kind of just tunnel vision in prioritizing school? Is it family life? Is it culture? Is it the fear of failing? I think it's lots of things. I mean, I think all the things you've said are there. I think we have different family norms about education. I think parents, I I mean, I see it just in my experience at Yale, parents are much more involved in their college students' education and, you know, what specific grades they're getting, what specific, like, uh, courses they're taking and so on. They're much more involved than they ever have been. So I think it's really a a parenting component. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's truth to these sociological ideas that we're in a different generation of kind of helicopter parents or even uh, researchers call it uh, lawnmower parents, where parents are kind of mowing the lawn to make sure everything is, you know, perfect and flat, and you know, their their kids never go through any trauma or anything mm-hmm. bad, um, or any, any even any like you know mild kinds of problems, right? Um, right? So I think that there's something to be said for that. I think this generation also grew up, you know, on the heels of an economic collapse, where you know there's real worries about, you know, can we, you know, are we going to be the generation that gets jobs? Are we going to be the generation that, you know, can buy a house and that sort of thing? And I think those worries seep in really early and students see their academics as a path to, you know, success in life, but almost in a way that it's too anxious. You know, they're too fearful about, you know, the fact that things are going to work out, which is like for most of them, you know, especially, you know, at a spot where I am like at Yale, where I'm dealing with Ivy League students, like they're all going to get jobs, you know, like the level of anxiety I see on campus for students who've kind of already made it, it's sort of really sort of scary and in some ways really ironic. Yeah. It's interesting because I mentor some pre-med students and I, when the ones I mentor were like way smarter than I was when I was a pre-med and doing way better than I was. And I'm like, listen guys, you're doing so much better than I was when I was in your place. Mm-hmm. What are you worried about? Where yeah. like you're, I can totally, I can see this all working out for you. What are you so anxious about? You know, that extra, you know, that, that, B plus versus an A minus. I mean, if it's one grade, you know, whatever. You move on, you find ways to get better. And there's no point in worrying uh, incessantly about this, about this one grade. And that's also a product of the culture we've created for, um, you know, admissions and getting into certain things. And then the competitiveness of getting into those things, you know, for medical school, it's extremely competitive to get in, especially in the States. And, um, you know, there's this culture that you have to be the best. You have to be in the top 5% and you, and it's not always, you know, necessarily the case. I mean, I definitely wasn't in the top, top of my class, but I, I made up for it in other ways. Um, but I definitely had students who had friends who were doing way better than me, who are way more stressed out than I was mm-hmm. at certain points. And it's, um, 
it's kind of sad that we do this to ourselves just to make it into, you know, just to get accepted into a school or just to, you know, get to the next step of our career. Cause really that's this, this, that stress on the body is so harmful. Yeah. I think, I think that's what students aren't realizing. You know, I think they think, well, I'll just grind, you know, for these four years in high school or these four years in college, and then, you know, I'll get out and it'll be worth it. But what they don't realize is they're setting themselves up for, you know, like a serious clinical level mental health dysfunction that, that are going to be problems for them for the rest of their lives, you know, where two thirds of students are reporting feeling overwhelmingly anxious, you know, to the point that they're having panic attacks about exams. You know, that's not the kind of thing that, you know, immediately goes away. As soon as you get your first job, students are taking these bad strategies with them. Um, you know, another domain that we see is that students are sleeping less than ever than we've seen in any other previous generation. And we know just not getting enough sleep can lead to things like increased risk for heart attacks, increased risk for strokes, increased risk for obesity, just an increased risk of death mm-hmm. generally. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, again, I think students think like, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll sleep when I'm dead or, you know, I'll work hard yeah. now or make friends <clears throat> later. And, you know, what they're missing is that these are the strategies that are going to lead them into the workplace. These are the strategies that are going to lead them them into their adult lives and they're going to have long-term consequences that they're going to have yeah. to deal with. And so I think somehow we've gotten off track rather than wanting to kind of learn and do well in school, we've gotten to this kind of anxious, obsessed sort of culture about this stuff to the yeah. point that it's really causing physical damage to our young people. Yeah. And I think we really just need to find ways out of this culture. Is there some, is it at an institutional level, you know, within, I mean, you're at a big institution at Yale. Is there anything from your perspective that can be done within institutions to change the way that grading is done or that the, you know, the dynamic of having to work for a grade or, you know, I, I, I understand that there has to be a level of competitiveness and, you know, the amount of work people put in and there has to be learning. Um, but is there, do you see a way it could be done better? Do you see gaps in the system that are leading to this kind of, um, to kind of the mental health problems that you're seeing? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one thing, you know, universities need to think seriously about is the structure of the grading that they use. Um, I think, you know, if we could get rid of grades at, you know, the college level, not just at one school, but writ large, I think it would really help, um, you know, because again, as, as you've seen kind of working with pre-mids, as you've seen, like, you know, the difference between the anxiety level for an A plus versus an A minus is just like, you know, or a B plus versus an A minus is just kind of crazy. I think students don't realize the toll that that anxiety is taking. So I think we can do things at the university level to think differently about uh, the way we grade our students. Um, Another is to think really differently about the way we admit students. You know, as you mentioned, things are getting more and more competitive, you know, but it's not entirely clear that that competition is giving us like the best, best, best possible students. I think if anything, it's contributing to a culture where many of our students are not mentally healthy enough to learn in the way that would be optimal. Um, And so I think we can rethink admissions and the criteria we use in different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, at Yale, it's often discussed that, you know, uh, like by any criteria, Yale could accept a class that's about four times as large, you know, with any, you know, if you measure number of valedictorians or grades or something like that. It's not necessarily the case. The students who are here are the best of the best of the best. They kind of just got lucky, you know, as sort of a one in four shot to get in. Yeah. Um, and so maybe just universities can be honest about that and say, you know, once you hit this number of AP classes, just stop. You know, once you hit this number of A's, just stop and like chill out like you've made it. Don't yeah. keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Well, we're also losing sight. I mean, so what's the point of getting a degree? The point of the getting a degree is to get to the next step and to, mm-hmm. into, into, you know, have it further your career. But a lot of times, you know, we're getting de- degrees that are 
not very relevant to the career paths we end up taking. And so, I mean, unless you're going into a profession like medicine or law or something that requires some additional professional training, um, there's just, you know, like a lot of these degrees are just, you know, dead ends. And then you kind of figure out your way into a lot of times, a lot of people are just, I have most of my friends don't practice what they got their degrees in. And, um, and yet there's still all this, all this stress and anxiety about going through that process. And years down the line, they're, they're in a career that, you know, like had they not even gone to college and just started working in that career, they probably had been better off in the first place. Exactly. And might've been, you know, more creative if they weren't so anxious and depressed and stressed out. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we need to have a real rethink about the values we place on, you know, college education specifically, and kind of this sort of career preparation. Um, you know, what the research shows is that it's often not, you know, the salary that you get that makes you happy. You know, once you're you're able to make ends meet, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you're earning $100,000 or $200,000 or $300,000, you're literally fine either way. It shows no corresponding increase in your well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we need to kind of get to a place where we start thinking about careers in a really different way about, you know, what are the ways that I can use my strengths? What are the values that I can have? You know, go mm-hmm. back to treating education as just this right that we need to kind of know stuff <clears throat> about the world, that that's the important thing. Yeah. Um, and so I think getting out of this sort of pre-professional preparation at the college level could be really important for improvements in well-being. Absolutely. You know, I kind of wish there was a class when I was in college that would have helped me get to know my strengths as like an individual person a lot better. Like I wish there was a class that like, you know, you took right in freshman year that helped you figure out, okay, what am I really good at naturally, you know? And, um, like, what are, what are my weaknesses and what are the things like, what, what are the areas that I really enjoy doing? What, what would I enjoy doing the most? And I think over the years, I've kind of figured these things out, but with a lot, like I was really blind to my strengths for many years. And I, I, I didn't really consider them strengths because I just thought everybody had, you know, everybody was like that, but then you go on and you notice and people tell you things and then you're like, Oh, maybe, you know, maybe this is something I'm good at. And then you notice your weaknesses and you're like, well, maybe this is something I'm not really bad at. And then you notice, you know, what things really drive you and what things get you excited. And I think those are the important things to pay attention to, because if you can kind of focus on the things that drive you, the things that make you really excited, and then also combine that with things that you're just naturally skilled at, then you set yourself up for for success, really success that'll come at a much easier, come much easier to you than had you chosen something that's, you know, like, like just something you're not naturally that good at or something you're not that passionate about. And then, you know, God knows how many years you spend in that field feeling like you're just stuck. Yeah. I think that can be really important. I mean, in a couple of different ways. So one is that everything we know in the, from the science of what makes a happy job suggests that you know, happy jobs are ones where not necessarily you're earning a lot of money. You need to earn enough to have a living wage. But but once you get a living wage, what makes you happy in your job is the fact that you have some variety. You can exert some creativity. You have some agency and some ownership over what you're doing. You're allowed to use your strengths. Um, those are the kinds of things that turn a job into a calling. But that's not often the way we teach students about what jobs to pick. You know, as you said, like there wasn't a class where you could learn about your strengths and figure this stuff out. Um, I think the second thing is that even if you kind of wind up in a spot where your job isn't, at, at least at first glance, sort of fulfilling your values or, or allowing you to meet your strengths, there's a lot of uh, ability that we have to sort of change things around. In fact, 
one of the people uh, we're interviewing uh, for our season two of our podcast is a, a professor at the Yale School of Management. And she does a lot of work on what's called job crafting, uh, which is this idea that you can craft your job to fit your values better. Um, so, she does this fantastic work with people whose jobs you might not think are the happiest sort of jobs out there. So she works with hospital janitorial staff. And she finds that some of them are incredibly happy with their job, see their job as a calling, you know, as much as say, you know, one of the doctors or a lawyer or a professor or something like that. And she finds that when people think of their job as a calling, they're con constantly bringing in their strengths. So these hospital workers would, for example, you know, realize that it's the humor that they spread with patients that kind of gives them meaning in life, or it's their own ability ability to try to influence patient care by, you know, putting plants in specific spots or moving things around so patients notice and kind of brightens patients' moods. So they're kind of going beyond their job description to do things that meet with their strengths. And she argues that basically anyone can job craft better. You know, you just have to find ways in, within your own job description to bring a little bit more of this sort of psychology of strengths in. Um, and once you do that, it really will improve your well-being. I, I really like that idea because I do kind of practice that I guess now that I think about it unconsciously in my day-to-day -day, um, job, because we, as residents, we, you know, we work a, a lot and a lot and a lot of hours, sometimes, you know, most weeks, 80 hours a week. And a lot of times you got to get a little bit crafty about how you're going to kind of reframe things and, and look at things so that you don't burn out. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really like that idea. And I do notice kind of like, and, you know, that is something I wonder about it and people who because a lot of times you see people working these very average jobs and you know they're just happy as ever happy as could be and they're doing what they love and they seem like they're you know they're living life yeah i think you know when you, you realize that it's not necessarily the salary that makes for a happy job it's kind of how you frame it what your mindset is about the job that really makes you happy um, and that means that, you know, you can have people in jobs you might not think of as the happiest jobs, but they adore them. Um, uh, for our season two of our podcast, we're interviewing uh, this guy, Marty, who's the pest control guy at Yale, who I work with. You know, he's the guy who, you know, if there's mice or cockroaches or bees or something, he has to deal with it. And he's just one of the happiest guys around, specifically happy about his job. And it's because, you know, he loves what he does. He gets to interact with professors and students. He gets to kind of creatively problem solve, you know. It, it's really fun for him. And so, you know, he doesn't see his job as just, you know, dealing with gross pets. He sees it as creative. He sees it as having, allowing yeah. him to have agency and so on. And, and so you can job craft pretty much any job to fit with your strengths and allow you to increase the value that you see in your work. That's really, that's really cool. Um, so how do you, how do you kind of, do you, are you aware of the steps that it takes to job craft? Like, how can you get to a point if you're, in a career where you're feeling stuck or maybe at a nine to five job where you're feeling stuck or you're not really getting the fulfillment you want from it? Yeah. Well, part of it is really to sit down and think about like, what are your values? Like almost like sit down and be like, you know, what are, what are my values? What are my strengths? You know, is it humor? Is it social life? Is it bravery? Is it, you know, learning and kind of just write these things down. Um, if you need help, there's some wonderful tools online that we use in our class. Um, one is uh, called the Strengths Finder Test, um, which you can get online if you just Google Strengths Finder Test, or if you uh, mm -hmm. take my online class, which is available on Coursera.org, you can do this. Um, but what you do is it kind of gives you a list of different character strengths that everybody could have, but some people have. Um, some people find really, really important. Researchers call them your signature strengths, and the mm -hmm. idea is like once you identify some of those. Uh, the idea is to sit down and think about, okay, how can I do a little bit more of this in my job description? Again, it's not to say that, you know, if you're 
I don't know if you're like a computer tech and then you're like, well, I love playing guitar. That's my strength. So I'm just going to play guitar all day. Like that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. um, but, but if you're a computer tech and you really love music, you could try to infuse that a little bit more into your day. You know, if you really love humor and connecting with people, you could try to see what parts of your job description you could reframe as being about that stuff. And so that's kind of how the job crafting works. It's you first figure out what are your strengths and what are your values and what are the kinds of spots within your current role that you could do more of that and still meet your job description. Hmm. Strengths and values. I like that. I like, I like the combination of that. So this is, where is this at? This is on your website. Yeah. You can check it out on, on that, on uh, the happiness lab website, which is happinesslab.fm. Um, and we have links to some of those and, and you can hear more about it in season two of our podcast that will launch on April 28th. It's awesome. So going forward into this new season, what are like, what's your goal? What's your, what do you want to really achieve with, with this new season of the podcast? Yeah. Well, if people listen to season one and some of our bonus episodes, you'll see that we really try to show people how their minds are lying to them about what makes them happy. You know, these spots where if we really understood the science, we could do better, you know, simple practical tips for things you can do every day to improve your well-being. Um, in season two, we're going to continue that, but we're going to dive in a little bit more deeply to some of the bigger problems that we face today. Um, we're going to talk about how you can be happier in the current political climate. We're going to tackle the topic of tribalism. Um, and this sort of political disconnect, you know, how can we overcome that to feel more connected and to not be as affected by these kind of anxiety inducing political times? Um, we're also going to talk about uh, how different strategies that we learn from the science of happiness can be employed to fix some of the bigger problems in life. You know, we're going to talk about the science of how you can use like your different strategies to improve things like climate change and how, how we can use things like behavioral contagion and the fact that we kind of naturally get a boost from the people around us to improve our habits over time. And so, mm -hmm. so we're going to get a little deeper, I think, get, get into some of the bigger problems, bigger ones than we faced in season one. But mm -hmm. I think it'll be really important and, and people who listen to the podcast will leave with these really specific tips of things that they can do better. Mm, interesting. I've, so I've actually had a few conversations with people on on the subject of happiness i'm not sure if you've heard if you know mo godot he wrote the book solve for happy mm -hmm. yeah um so i actually had him on the podcast uh not too long ago and um you know he came up with this happiness equation um relating happiness to our expectations and you know what we expect out of life versus what reality is and um i i over the over like the, the years of, you know, I'm a huge podcast listener. I, I, I listen to a lot of this, the self-growth and, you know, like the, you know, the motivational podcasts and things like that. And there's a lot of talk on happiness. And I think sometimes it gets overcomplicated and then there's just, you know, we overanalyze what it takes to be happy. And we think about all the different ways to be happy. Um, and I'm always curious, you know, like what's the most, you know, the people that are the happiest, I don't see them, you know, like, seeking out all the all the knowledge in the in, in the podcasts and the books they're just happy and i'm wondering like why is it that the people that are trying the hardest and learning and and, and listening and reading all this stuff are not as happy whereas some people just kind of know how to be happy yeah and well there's a couple of factors there i mean so the research really does show that they're are aspects of happiness that are heritable. In other words, you know, you're kind of genetically pre-wired to do the sorts of strategies that lead you to be happier. So some of us are just genetically luckier, you know, just like some of us mm -hmm. are taller, less prone to getting fat, that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. That's true for happiness too. Um, mm -hmm. But but what the research shows 
is that those people who have those genetic predispositions, it's not necessarily just that they're naturally happier. They naturally take on the sorts of mindsets and do the sorts of behaviors right. that we know improve happiness. So I for example, yeah. they're, they're like naturally more social. They'll like naturally hang out with people. You know, they're naturally more grateful. You know, they naturally bring to mind things that they're grateful for. The good news is that if you learn what happy people do, even if you're kind of genetically wired not to be so happy, I, I throw myself into that camp. I don't think genetically I'm the kind of person who would be very social or be really grateful and so on. But, mm -hmm. but the research shows that you can copy the things that these happy folks are doing. And that's what this podcast is totally about. And mm -hmm. I think if you know the right things to do, you really, the, the research suggests you really can improve your well-being. I mean, that's the striking thing is that it's not just kind of, you know, these self-help platitudes. There are evidence-based approaches, specific things you can do to improve your well-being. And if you know how to do those, you really can get happier. If you had to simplify all of your work in ha in the happiness space, which I know is a lot of work, and I know I'm asking a lot, but if you had to simplify it to like a few things, maybe one, two, or three things, what do you think is is at the top of that the top three of that list? Yeah, well, we mentioned one already, which is to take time to be social. Um, social people are happier, and research shows that if you uh, find ways to be a little bit more social, again in real life, social. Um, mm -hmm. That will improve your well-being. Um, a second one is to take time to be a little bit grateful, you know, to kind of reset your expectations, to not be about complaining, but to kind of take time to count your blessings. Um, research shows that grateful people are happier. And that's just a simple switch that all of us can do where we just, you know, take time to, you know, just literally count our blessings, jot down three to five things you're grateful for. Mm -hmm. um, a final thing I would say, again, there's lots of them, but, you know, one, if I'm just sort of picking the top three would be to kind of pay a lot of attention to your time. You know, are you spending your time mindfully? You know, are you present um, during the time that you have? And are you trying to prioritize your time? Are you trying to avoid sort of time famine where you're feeling so hungry for time? Are you kind of giving yourself a little bit of time off and being really present when you have that time off? Um, those would be my top three tips for people who are trying to use the science to improve their well-being. And if you need more tips, definitely check out the yeah. podcast. I will say that third one, the attention to time is huge for me. Mm -hmm. Um, especially when we're, especially living in such a busy lifestyle at the moment and in, in residency, because we have, I have so little time outside of work that I really have to be so conscious about every hour that I spend in my day. And mm -hmm. when I started doing that, when I started to get really, you know, like, what am I doing hour to hour after work, between work, how much sleep am I getting? And I started, you know, making it a math and, uh, and a real, like, you know, I planned out way more. This is just the, in the last few months. And I've done this before, back when I was in med school, when I was, you know, really crunched on time as well. And I think, especially when you're leading a really busy life, you have to get a little bit selfish in terms of, you know, where you're letting your time go. And you have to be really um, just aware of where it's all going when you have very limited amounts of it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of growing, there's a growing body of research on what's called time affluence, this idea of the objective sense of how much free time we have. And it turns out that people who are more time affluent are happier. Um, mm. but, but the interesting thing is it's not the objective amount of time you have. It's your own subjective sense that you have some free time. And it turns out that that's what's going down in the modern age. Yeah. Um, everyone these days feels like they don't have that much time. But there's yeah. not a lot of evidence that we actually have less time than usual. If anything, we kind of maybe even have slightly more time than usual, but it just feels so frantic and spent and so on. And so finding ways to really prioritize 
the fact that you have real clear free time can be really powerful. And this yeah. gets back to, you know, what we'd been talking about before about social media, you know, those moments on Instagram can really break up time in these funny ways and make us feel like, oh, we don't have any free time. But then, you know, if you peer at your screen time on your phone, and then you're often like, yeah. oh my gosh, I wasted so yeah. much time, you know, hanging out on my phone. And so yeah. finding conscious ways to spend time can be really powerful for improving mm -hmm. well-being. Yeah, I'm smiling right now because a light bulb just went off in my head <laughs> because, <laughs> because I'm just thinking, I'm like, wow, that is so true that, you know, when I feel like I don't have time, that's when I'm the most unhappy. When I feel mm -hmm. like my time is not mine and that I'm on somebody else's clock. And that I don't have time to do the things that I want to do or I can't fit them in. That's when I am the most unhappy in my life. And I, and it's a, I've never really consciously been aware of it, I think, until this moment. <laughs> but I think that's a big one, especially now with, you know, with the culture of work and with the culture of, um, you know, especially academic culture. And, you know, for residents, I know any resident listening to me right now is just like, they're just yelling out preach because we have zero time mm -hmm. to do the things that we want to do. Um, you know, like spend time with our families, you know, make, make a nice meal at home, go to the gym. Like if we want to do these things, we really got to plan them out and we got to sacrifice in other areas of our life. And um, I mean, uh, that's a big one. I think that for me, at least that's a big one. And the, and the thing to remember, I think if you're feeling not time affluent is that, Again, it's not the objective amount of time, it's your subjective sense. And there's a lot of things you can do to improve that subjective sense that you have more time. And you can, you know, I know residency is tough and your calendar is really busy, but go into that calendar and schedule time to just do something you love, you know, so that when you do have time off, you're really spending it in ways that make, make you feel more time affluent rather than more time famished. Um, there's a lot of research suggesting that time famine kind of feels like hunger famine, you know, and as a doctor, you get what that does, you know, you're triaging things, you kind of feel really desperate and so on. Um, but time famine can do the same thing. Um, one of the problems right now is that when we have free time, we don't really spend it well. You know, you, you get these, first of all, we get little breaks of time, what researchers call time confetti, you know, so we have like, you know, 20 minutes off here, 15 minutes off there. Um, but it's not big stretches of time and that can kind of feel broken up. But the big Thing is that when we get that time, we don't really spend it well. You know, that's when we like, we'll plop down, you know, when I have a really exhausting day at work, I know that's the evening I want to like plop and watch Netflix or, you know, like just scroll on Reddit or look at Instagram feeds. Like that's not the time when I want to like, you know, call a friend from college who I haven't talked to in a long time or, or take a break to exercise or to meditate. Like when we get small pockets of time, we don't use them for things that improve our well-being. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, contributes to us feeling more time famished and then the cycle goes on and on. Yeah. Yeah. That's you're, 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 I'm resonating with all of this right now because, <laughs> <laughs> because there are those times where I'm like, you know, coming back from work and I'm like deciding between getting some rest and just hanging out or going to the gym. And I'm like, kind of like weighing, I'm kind of weighing the pros and cons at the time. And I'm like, all right, well, if I go to the gym, I don't know, I might feel a little bit more tired, but I might feel better, but I'm also exhausted from work. And I, I want to make sure I get my six hours of sleep before I work the next day. And, um, it's just, <laughs> it's a, it's a real struggle, but yeah, I think, I think this space that you're in right now and kind of addressing the issues that you're talking about, I think for, for a lot of people, my age, um, you know, between 20 and 30, I think we're really feeling the pressure and we're feeling, you know, the, the, 
the angst of all these new things coming up at us all at once, you know, nobody's, you know, social media has never been around, you know, we're playing with fire here. We don't know what the long-term effects are. We don't know how it's changing our brains. We don't know how it's affecting our relationships. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like all these, all these experimental new ways of living are, you know, we don't, we don't know, we don't know how this is affecting us. And I guess it's up to us to just kind of figure it out and and find solutions to do better. Yeah. And I think that's why knowing the science can be really powerful, you know, because it's one thing to kind of have a sense of like, oh, that didn't feel good or, but, but when you see the science, you know, when you see the graphs about, you know, how, how much higher depression is after some time on social media, you know, how important sleep is, you know, how, how much you get a well-being boost from, you know, calling a friend or taking time for social connection. I think, mm-hmm. you know, the great thing about folks in your generation, you know, in their 20s to 30s, is that they're, you know, a really evidence-based generation, you know, they don't want platitudes, they want these specific evidence-based tips for how they can do better. Um, and, you know, they really will put those tips into action in a way that I think, you know, the boomers and the Gen Xers, like, they might not do as well. Um, and so I think that's why the science can be so important is that once you see what you could be doing, what you should be doing, then all you have to do is put that into effect, which is not immediate and it's not easy. You know, we can know what we need to do and it's still hard to put it into effect, but knowing really is the first step. Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. And there's, um, so I, I would actually recommend, you know, like this is just a recent experiment that I did. And, um, the, so like on, January 1st, I deleted my social media and I said, I was going to record, I was going to record myself every week over the next 30 days to see kind of the changes that I notice while being away. And I think the biggest thing that I noticed was that I was talking to my friends more mm-hmm. and that I was um, more engaged in my um, day-to-day life. Uh because I really think I, and this is just a theory. I don't know if there's any evidence of, around this, but I think that those superficial interactions kind of, kind of, I think we all have a need for some social interaction. And when you're getting it online, you all of a sudden don't need that real life interaction anymore because you're just, it's getting satisfied somewhere else. You know, you're getting, you're getting that fulfillment through the social media and then you're going about your days, you know, like being okay with not talking to people or being okay, just kind of like going into your shell. And uh, it's because you've already gotten, you know, like 20 messages on social media and had a bunch of people tell you, you look really, you know, like you look really great in that outfit or your butt looks nice in that picture or whatever it is, you know, like people are looking, people are getting vanity, uh, like kind of like, like these um, dopamine rushes from the compliments and from like the very superficial interactions that we get over social media. Yeah, I think I think that happens all the time, especially with social connection. You know, in class, I often talk about how our the connection we get online is sort of the NutraSweet of social connection. You know, it, it feels like it's sugar, like it feels like we're getting some calories, but it kind of leaves us emptier after the fact. Um, and I I worry about that because you know, like if, if NutraSweet was really easily available, you know, with no with no like you know work involved, like we'd go for it, right? You know, our brains would be fooled but we mm-hmm. wouldn't be getting kind of the nutritious calories we need. And, and that's right. the kind of it's way empty I calories. It's, it's like empty McDonald's. Calories. Yeah, exactly. It's a McChicken like, and McDonald's compared <laughs> totally. to like a nice salmon filet that you can <laughs> yeah, but get it, in you real know, life. Cheap, no work, you know, it just goes really fast. And so, 
Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, we have to put work in for social connection. You know, that's, that's a thing that's always been true. Um, but now we have this opportunity cost because it's so easy to be on social media. You know, we forget how powerful that can be. So, yeah, well, Hey, I think you're doing great work. And I think, uh, I think a lot of people would benefit from listening to the happiness lab and, and learning more from the guests that you have on. I think I'm for sure going to be tuning in on my drives to work and back from work. So, um, I'm looking at what, I mean, what are you most excited about for this next new season? And what do you think people um, are going to really love about the new season? Yeah, well, I think people are going to get some incredibly practical tips for improving their well-being and ones that really map onto the current time. You know, this current day and age of anxiety and political tribalism and social media and climate change. You know, there's a lot to be anxious about, but I think the science really gives us great tools for how to not only reduce our anxiety and feel better, but also to maybe solve some of these big problems too. Very cool. And where, where can people find you? Where can people connect with you at? Yeah. So you can check me out on Twitter, uh, Lori Santos on Twitter. Um, you can check out the happiness lab with Dr. Lori Santos podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Sweet. Dr. Santos, it's a pleasure talking with you. I, I really enjoy the, the intellectual stimulation and kind of where my brain's running right now especially <laughs> with this attention to time thing i'm about to get really really focused on this part of my life awesome um, fantastic but thank you so much guys find dr santos at the happiness lab subscribe to her podcast tag us on social media and uh we'll post you all right guys all right guys